All right. Well, we are continuing in chapter 22 of the Confession of Faith of Religious Worship and the Sabbath. Uh, so far, we've only looked at the first two paragraphs of the chapter, but they've been a really fun two paragraphs. I don't know about you. I've had a lot of fun studying them. Uh, we saw in the first paragraph, it kind of deals really with big picture stuff, um, the most foundational sort of matters. It establishes uh, a universal duty of all men to worship. Um, all men everywhere are called to worship God, whether Christian or not. And this is the case by virtue of being creatures and by virtue of the fact that God is God. Um, why can God do with us what he wills? Well, the Bible's answer is not palatable to the wor world, but the Bible's answer is because he made you. <laughs> Man rejects that. That's like, but, 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 and God's like, yeah, I just, I made you. So, so deal with it. Worship me. That is universal. Next, we saw, though, in paragraph two, only God can define how he is to be worshipped. This makes total sense. Um, worship is not man's idea. It's not like, um, you know how, like, we kind of see this with David. He's like, I am in a house of cedar, and, and the ark of the Lord dwells in a tent. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to bless that God guy. And I, now, he, he did, it did actually come from a good place because God blessed him. Um, but that's not really the origin of worship. It's God's idea. It's been commanded from the beginning. And so, therefore, only God can limit and define what it is to be. Next, in paragraph 2, we saw what, at first glance, seems to be such an obvious statement. You wonder, does a confession of faith even have to say it? which is namely that only God is to be worshipped. And yet, sadly, you do have to reassert that. And we've seen particularly with Rome. They introduce all kinds of distinctions, fine-tooth distinctions and gaslighting arguments um, for, for why ultimately other beings besides God can be worshipped. And I know they would reject that. I'm not trying to, you know, we want to try to be careful to... Um, to never misrepresent someone's beliefs on the one hand to say, we always want our opponents to some degree to say, I, yeah, that's, that's what I believe, right? I agree, you've represented me fairly. On the other hand, we don't actually buy into all their arguments, and so to truly represent them fairly in light of the word of God, no, you do worship other things besides God because you give acts of worship to them, right? And then secondly, we, we also saw that only Christ is the only mediator. And so paragraphs one and two kind of really start with those most fundamental aspects of worship before really even diving into what worship is. Well, with paragraph three and four, um, which are concerned mainly with prayer, now we are finally starting to ask kind of a little bit, we're coming down to the more of the particulars of what worship actually is. Um, there, there are a few aspects of these paragraphs which have Rome in mind. Um, a little bit of paragraph three and some of paragraph four. However, compared with paragraphs one and two, these paragraphs are a little bit less polemical to some degree uh, as compared to what has gone before. They really set forth a positive, uh, a concise but thorough biblical definition of prayer. And what I want us to do today is just begin to walk through the various aspects of this comment along the way. It's a very rich uh, description of prayer. If paragraphs one and two are, are polemical, three and four are to some degree almost devotional. Or rather, we could say, instead of challenging Rome, they challenge us. <laughs> it's great for us to say, well, you know, we don't do that with Rome. Okay, Let's look at our own worship of God. That's really what 3 and 4 does. Um, we will engage in a bit of polemic. Um, I didn't anticipate this, but somewhere along the way, I decided somehow I was going to talk about this. Um, but not with Rome, actually with hyper-Calvinism. Uh, and I saw this actually because this is all related. Um, it's funny how there's, there's paragraphs and there's chapters in the confession that we kind of skip over real quickly. We're like, yeah, we know this stuff, right? Or there's certain doctrines. Um, 
And yet, everything is, is interrelated. And this, some of the doctrines we'll see here uh, have historically, uh, misunderstandings of these doctrines, I would say, have historically led to um, the failure to give the gospel call to repent and believe, right? The fact that we can command unbelievers, unbelievers to repent and believe. Um, many godly, particular Baptists, John Gill, um, they, they rejected that. I love John Gill. I think he's like, I was talking to a brother about this the other day, he's like my go-to, he's the first guy, if I'm going to read a commentary on something, I, like he's just going to give you the basic picture, but he also has great insights. Um, and yet, uh, some of this stuff in this chapter here helps us to give a response to those who say, well, if God has elected everyone and only faith is something the elect can have, then we cannot um, call a mixed crowd unbelievers and believers. We can't call them all to repent and believe. Well, stuff in this chapter says, no, actually we can, right? And, and we'll, we'll look at that. Like I said, that's not prayer, um, but, but it is kind of related. So, And I saw, I saw a Twitter thread about this, and I was like, you know, some of the stuff we've been looking at actually helps us to, to answer this. So... Well, with that being said, let's go ahead and read paragraphs three and four. We're only going to get to paragraph through paragraph three and even not all of it today. But let's read three and four just because they go together. Starting with paragraph three. Prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship is by God required of all men. But that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to his will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when with others, in a known tongue. Paragraph 4. Prayer is to be made for things lawful, and for, for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, not for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. Okay? Well, let's go ahead and begin uh, to walk through both of these paragraphs. Um, beginning in paragraph, well, we'll only get really to paragraph three today, but beginning in paragraph three, prayer with thanksgiving, being one part of natural worship, is by God required of all men. First, just notice here the coupling together of prayer and thanksgiving. Prayer and thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an integral part of prayer. We saw this as we, we criticized the idea of Rome, that you can pray to other mediators besides Christ. Well, does it not follow upon that, that if they give you grace as you suppose, you will also give them thanks? Right? I think it does. And I'm sure they do. They give thanks to those mediators. Well, now you're not just praying to someone else, which itself is an act of worship, but because thanksgiving goes with prayer, now you're also thanking others, other mediators who are not Jesus Christ and other, other beings who are not God himself. It's interesting, in chapter 7 of the book of Leviticus, when we get there, we'll read about the thanksgiving sacrifices. Uh, they are a way of giving thanks to God in the Old Testament. But right there, it, it shows us again the connection between thanksgiving and the worship of God. In, in the scriptures, sacrifices are only ever given to God. You don't sacrifice to someone else. You may sacrifice for someone else. Job sacrificed for his family. But you never sacrifice to anything that is creature, only to creator and yet, thanksgiving is a part of those sacrifices, which, again, just shows you should only be giving thanksgiving to God himself, but if you're praying to other mediators, it follows, you will give them thanks, which is just one more reason why that's problematic. Let's consider this, uh, however, from less of a polemical stance, and let's actually direct it at ourselves. When you pray... Do you give thanks? I think we would all say we give thanks to some degree, right? 
Giving thanks, however, is not a vague sort of thing that we pass over to get to our supplications. It's not like, as we often do, dear Lord, thank you for this day. <laughs> I think those are the first words. It's really funny. If you pray long enough uh, with certain people, they have certain formulas. I don't think they mean to, um, but they pray that way. There was a brother, if I were to name him, you would all know him, uh, and I think he says, he, start, he would always start off, dear holy and righteous father. That's how he would always start off. Um, my kind of thing, it's like, dear Lord, we thank you for this day. And yet, it's, it's kind of a mindlessness when I say that. Um, we'll talk about that later, that prayer is to be done with understanding. Um, but a lot of times, our thanksgiving is just kind of in little brief things like that. And then we move on to pray particularly for particular supplications. I would argue what it, part of what it means to give thanksgiving in our prayer means to give thanksgiving for particular blessings. Um, just as to really pray is not like, God, please help us with all we need to do today, amen. Well, okay, you've prayed. But that's not the manner of prayer we see in Scripture. You pray for specific things. And in fact, I've argued in sermons that, you know, when you pray more with faith and boldly, there's a specificity to the boldness of faith in prayer, right? Well, I would say that there's a specificity of thanksgiving as well. Um, I know for myself, not, not putting myself up as this model of, uh, of a, someone who gives great thanksgiving all the time, but I know I've been challenged. Um, and the way I start my time with the Lord is, is briefly thinking of things to thank God for in the past, the past day. Um, things that I prayed for, uh, to give thanks for those things when God answers those prayers. I've mentioned uh, a book to the congregation. We, we saw it earlier this year when we had our day of fasting and prayer together, um, but it's Thomas Goodwin's book titled The Return of Prayers. It's about the importance, the, the duty of giving thanks. Not just it's a great idea, it's a duty to give thanks to God. Um, and when I read it, it, it really nailed me because it shows if you're not giving thanks, um, and I would say truly in a manner of particularity, that's an aspect of worship to God that you owe to him that is lacking. Um, and so I know I've, I've really tried to spend more time to think, what are the blessings of God? And I can tell you, <clears throat> there's times when I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, thank you for good sleep. Uh, and then I'm like, boom, and it hits me. I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally was praying for that, and God answered that, and I haven't even thanked him yet for it, you know? This thing was like tearing up my, my soul, and I lifted it to God, and he answered, and I haven't even given thanks for it yet. And the more time you do that, man, just the more of those things you see. But let me just share with you, I think I've shared this before, but it's, it's so good, just a few reasons why Goodwin says that we are to give thanks to the Lord when we pray uh, just to encourage, but also to challenge you to really incorporate this more. He says, we are to give thanks to God, quote, because otherwise you take an ordinance of God in vain in your hearts. If you don't thank God, you're taking prayer, which is an ordinance, something God commands, you're taking it in vain in your hearts, which is to take God's name with whom in that ordinance you deal. You're dealing with God in vain. You're taking his name in vain as well. For it is a sign you think your prayer not an effectual means to attain that end is it is ordained for. And say secretly in your hearts, as they say, Job 21, 15, what profit have we if we pray to him? For if we use any means and expect not the end, it is a sign we think the means vain to accomplish that end. Whereas every faithful prayer is ordained of God to be a means to obtain what we desire and pray for, and is not put up in vain, but shall have an answer. So if what he's saying is if you have prayed, right, like I said, this, oh man, crisis happened in the week, right? 
uh, and you're praying, you're praying, and then God answers it, and you don't really give thanks for that, what, is, what does that say about how you were actually trusting in God? Do you see that as something God provided for you? Then you ought to show that to God, and we are called to do so by thanks. But if not, there's, there's almost a, a sign we're not seeing it as coming from God, or at least because we're not acknowledging it to be so. Furthermore, he explains, if God doth give you an answer, now he's not talking about like the Lord told me, I have a word of knowledge for you, brother, right? Um, the only word of knowledge is, knowledge is scripture verses that we have, right? Um, but he means if you pray for something and then God truly answers it, you know, Lord, um, if this is your will for this job, for me to take it, you know, open the door. If not, close the door. And let's say he closes it. Well, that's a way of God answering you. If God doth give you an answer, if you mind it not, you let God speak to you in vain when you do not listen to what he answers. If two men walk together, and the one, when himself hath said and spoke what he would, listens not, but is regardless of what the other answers, he exceedingly slights the man. Have you ever been that where you're, you're talking to someone, I just don't have good people skills or something, and you're like, oh, yeah, well, this and that, and I'm like, great. And then they just, maybe they don't pay attention, or they just change the subject, and you're like, hey, this is kind of a two-way road social here, right? It's kind of a slight to not respond. He says, that's essentially what we're doing with God when we say something, he answers, and we don't respond. He says, now our speaking to God by prayers and his speaking to us by answers thereunto is one great part of our walking with God. And to study out his dealings with us, to compare our prayers and his answers together, which are as dialogues between us. You know, I like, I like uh, annually now, I, I try to do this, uh, I have a prayer journal. Uh, I try not to be legalistic about it, but it's, it's just helpful for me because I'm so scatterbrained to write down things before I pray, pray them. But to look back and read and to be like, oh man, I remember when I wrote this. <laughs> My soul was in a state of despair. And to go, God, thank you, you answered that. You know? And then to look at that, you're, you're comparing your prayers with his answers. He, I, I love how he says, it's one great part of our walking with God to give thanks after he has answered our prayer. So, all that to say, thanksgiving is a huge part of prayer, and, and I would say it's, it's one of the greatest blessings you can do, truly. It's one of the greatest ways you can free your soul from fear. When stress or anxiety grips your soul and it's like, I'm going to own you and make you just be fretting all the time, Start giving thanks to God. Start recounting all of his blessings. I've, I've done this with Anna. Annika made me do this one time. So I was super depressed and, and anxious. And she said, let's just start thinking of all the ways God has answered prayer. And I was like, oh, leave me in my despair. And we started doing it. And it was like, oh my gosh, I haven't even thanked God for that. There were so many things he answered. And then by the end of that, you're like, yeah, he's gonna still do it. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's so liberating. There's so much joy that comes in giving thanks to God. It's like pulling teeth from the flesh. The flesh is like, oh, thank you, God, for this food. Oh, you can't even have a, like a, a deep thought about it. Once you start doing it, though, oh, man, you won't have enough time to give thanks to God for all of his blessings. So let me just encourage you with that. It's an integral part of prayer. All right, well, continuing on. Start from the beginning again. Prayer with thanksgiving, being one part of natural worship, is by God required of all men. Now this is getting, uh, again, at what we saw in paragraph one, namely the duty of all men to worship God. It refers to it here as natural worship. Um, not that someone can offer natural worship that is acceptable to God, and we offer Christian worship, that's not the concept at all. Rather, it's the kind of worship and duties that are revealed or that follow upon natural or general revelation. 
okay? So again, if paragraph one, the light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just good and doth good unto all men, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. Here, it's dealing with the prayer aspect of that. Now, interestingly, it says prayer is one part of natural worship. Who can tell me what the other parts are? Ways that men ought to worship God, not that they do or they can in a way that's acceptable, but what are some other ways that we would say is another part of natural worship? And let me just say, it's open quiz, and you'll find an answer if you look down in the rest of this chapter of the confession. Garrett is smirking, whatever that means. Pardon? That's natural worship? Unbelievers don't have the word, though. Look at paragraph 7. As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by his word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy. So the Sabbath, the Sabbath principle, is something which follows upon nature. All men ought to keep the Sabbath. This is why it's like if there's an unbeliever, even if they're not an unbeliever and they're just going to go have, do whatever they want on the Lord's Day, that's sin. They should keep the Sabbath. Not because they're believers, but because the Sabbath is incumbent upon all men, right? And it's revealed that it is now on the first day of the week. So that's, that's a special particular um, day of appointment, right? But that's, that's part of natural worship there. Um, as I said earlier, it's interesting how certain chapters of the Confession of Faith and certain doctrines or practices have impacts on the other, uh, which maybe at first glance you don't see the connection. Um, but there's a connection here between the concept of natural worship, or just more basically, that all men have a duty to worship God and evangelism. As I said, those two things are, are related, particularly the fact that you can tell an unbeliever in, in evangelism, you don't just say to an unbeliever, God sent his only son to save sinners, so that those who believe may be saved. You can do that, but then you also tell them, therefore, you repent, and you believe, and you will be saved if you do so, right? It's that further step, and one of the reasons why we can do that, why we can say that, is because of this idea that all men everywhere are obligated to um, worship God. As I said, that idea... It's called, the, it's called the free offer of the gospel, was rejected by some of our Baptist forebears, the hyper-Calvinists. Um, as I said, very godly men, uh, John Gill, uh, others, um, especially after the time of our confession, during the Enlightenment, um, really dug into hyper-Calvinism in a lot of ways. Um, and one thing that they were very opposed to was not sharing the gospel with unbelievers. We have to be careful when they, they weren't opposed to evangelism or the spreading of the gospel. They did that. They were Christians. I think even John Gill and hyper-Calvinists were involved uh, in certain projects for spreading the gospel. But it's that little last part where you give the call and you command people to repent and believe. That they totally rejected. They also, uh, because of this, it kind of all goes together. We talked about this during the conference. Um, they, they held to a view of justification. They confused um, the decree of God with what is decreed and what takes place in time. And they argued that since God has decreed justification from all eternity, therefore, believers are truly justified from all eternity. This means that conversion is not so much 
when someone enters, uh, leaves the kingdom of darkness and enters into the kingdom of light, but it's rather the moment that they realize that they are saved. It's not so much a true conversion as we think, but it has to do with assurance of salvation, right? And again, it's, it's, it's really, there, there's a great fear when you read their writings to put anything kind of in the place of, of man having any role to contribute, which there's, there's a lot that we can agree with that, but also they threw out a lot of very helpful, helpful distinctions. Um, they, they oppose the idea of what they call duty faith. You'll, you'll read them say that, duty faith, and it's kind of like, it's kind of a, it's a dig for sure. Um, for them, if you say, to say an unbeliever is obligated, has a duty to believe the gospel, you are essentially making the covenant of grace a covenant of works in their mind. And you're also commanding, you're, you're torturing an unbeliever by commanding them to do something that they cannot do because they're not elect, and they never will be able to do it, right? That's, that's how they argued it. The Reformed historically use categories. Our own confession of faith uses these categories, and they're very helpful for us to, to make distinctions that stop us from, from being able to command all men everywhere uh, to repent and believe. For example, our confession speaks um, of legal obedience and evangelical obedience. Legal and evangelical. And notice, it's law and gospel. Legal, law, evangelical, evangel, gospel. Law, obedience, and gospel, obedience. Law, obedience is the basis upon which you receive blessings. It's a covenant of works, right? The one who does them shall live. If you do the commandments, you shall live. As opposed to the righteous shall live by what? By faith. If you do obey, but your obedience is, even, even your obedience in faith is not the ground of your justification. It's not the ground of your receiving any of those blessings. And yet, if you don't have those two categories, which are very helpful, all obedience is legal obedience. That's kind of how they, they interpret that. So if you say unbelievers have a duty to believe to them, all they hear is you're turning this into a covenant of works. But, but they're getting away from categories which the Reformed held, um, which, which help us to, to avoid those things. Furthermore, faith, although it is not a work um, in the sense that it, it receives the work of another, right? Faith is not a work. Paul juxtaposes faith and works. Faith is not a work, but it receives the work of Christ. Nevertheless, it is a duty, and it is a way that people obey. It's something we are commanded to do. I've mentioned this before in the book of Romans, there's a phrase that Paul uses at the very beginning and at the very, very end. It's interesting. It's the phrase, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. For example, in chapter 1 of Romans, he says that he and the apostles have received their apostleship, quote, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. In chapter 16, last chapter, verse 26, he talks again about to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, there's some debate about what exactly that's referring to. There's some people that we can genuinely disagree with, but there's also really unhealthy ways that you don't want to take this. Some say um, it refers not to faith itself. It's not that faith is a way that we obey, but rather it, it's the obedience that accompanies faith, Right? We say faith alone justifies, but it is never alone insofar as it, it, it is always accompanied with good works, faith working through love, right? That's how some people take it. An unhealthy way that you never want to take this, I would say, is what you see uh, in the writing of, of, of federal visionists and, and really ultimately Arminian, Arminians. Um, Arminians and, and most, uh, not all, but most of the federal visionists I've read deny the imputation of Christ's active obedience. They're okay with the passive. It gives you the clean slate. But guess where your positive righteousness comes from? It's not Christ. It's faith. 
That's Arminianism. Faith is your righteousness. We would say faith can be called righteousness insofar as it is the instrument which grabs hold of Christ's righteousness, but our faith, the confession says, the act of believing is not imputed to us for righteousness, right? But those who take it that way, who say faith is, and I would say they, they turn faith into a work, essentially, um, they interpret this phase, this phrase, the obedience of faith, in a very unhealthy way, which we don't want to take it. Nevertheless, while I reject that, I do believe that this is simply talking about faith itself. The obedience of faith, I'm not denying that faith is not accompanied by good works, I agree with that, but I think the phrase, the obedience of faith, according to Paul, is the nations obeying the call to repent and believe. Not that it's the basis of our righteousness, it is evangelical obedience. Nevertheless, it is true obedience, okay? You see this in how Paul preaches the gospel. For example, Acts 17, he's preaching to the philosophers in Athens. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It's a command of God. It's for all people. Older theologians would have said it's a promiscuous call. In modern English, that sounds very bad. <laughs> promiscuous is someone who dates everybody, right? They're a womanizer. They go with everyone. But it has the idea of something that is for everyone. So they would say the gospel call is promiscuous. It goes to everyone. And what is it a call to do? To repent, surely to believe as well. To get back to the subject at hand then, we can argue that unbelievers truly have a duty to obey the gospel and to receive it when they hear it. They have a duty to repent and believe and embrace the gospel. And the basis for this duty is not because they're members of the covenant of grace. That's what John Gill and those guys would argue. If they're not members of the covenant of grace, they don't have a duty to believe. No, the basis for why unbelievers have a duty to repent and believe the gospel is because the gospel comes from God and they are creatures. It's as simple as that. If God tells you to do something, to believe in something, you do it. Whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, you still have a duty. The big book that really challenged this hyper-Calvinism on the issue uh, was Andrew Fuller's A Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation, um, and he really gets to the idea, uh, he connects creatureliness with duty to accept the gospel. And I, I think he's very right there. That's why I said this, this concept of natural worship, it, it, it does have a lot of utility. If you understand there's a duty, not that unbelievers can, apart from the enabling of the Spirit, but they have a duty nevertheless, there's a lot of usefulness that we get out of this doctrine. Listen to what he says. You can see how it kind of parallels our confession of faith. He says, the goodness of God, though it is not a law or formal precept, yet it virtually, you could say maybe implicitly, requires a return or a response of gratitude. The goodness of God, though it is not a law or formal precept, yet it virtually requires a return of gratitude. It deserves it. And the law of God in Scripture formally requires it on his behalf. Notice the connection. There's an implicit connection between the goodness of God and worshiping him. The goodness of God is just his character. It's not a command, right? But it implies, once you see his goodness, you ought to worship him. Again, look at paragraph 1 of, the Confe of chapter 22. The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good unto all. When you bite into a ripe peach, mm, whenever I get a good peach, I think of Seinfeld, where he says, Cosmo says, the Mackinac peaches, Jerry, the Mackinac peaches. They have this whole episode about this great peach, right? I don't even know I don't even know what it is, but I know what a great peach tastes like. When you taste into the goodness of that, 
That points to a good creator. Why? Because it's good and it came from somewhere. It came from a plant that has design. And in that, it points to the goodness of God. Now, I have never taken a bite of a peach, looked inside, and see a formal command that says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Nevertheless, it follows upon the goodness of God revealed in nature that there is a duty to worship. And many of you, when you see the goodness of God, you see it in a beautiful, if you see mountains or something, you, your heart can't help, it wells up. Like, oh man, what a marvelous God we have. There's this connection between seeing it and, and worshiping God. It's not a formal command, but it's implied in it. Therefore, the confession says, the light of nature shows that God is good and doth good unto all. And then what does it say after that? It goes on to say, let me see, I got lost. Maybe I didn't put it there. Oh, that this good God is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the mind. So the goodness of God, though it is not a law, a formal precept, Andrew Fuller says, it virtually requires a return of gratitude. It deserves it. Okay? Now listen to what he says in regards to the gospel. Thus it is with respect to the gospel, which is the greatest overflow of divine goodness that was ever displayed. If the goodness of God in creation means we are required to worship that good God, how much more so when you see the goodness of God through Jesus Christ in the gospel? He says a response suitable to its nature is virtually required by the gospel itself and formally by the divine precept on its behalf. So not only does the goodness itself require it, but we see other commands in Scripture, repent and believe the gospel, right? He says, I suppose it might be taken for granted that the gospel possesses some degree of virtual authority as it is generally acknowledged that by reason of the dignity of its author, God, and the importance of the subject matter, it deserves the audience and attention of all mankind, even more that all mankind have an opportunity of hearing it, are obliged to believe it. The gospel does not come from men. It's preached by men, but it's a command of God. And when the unbeliever, though they are not in the covenant of grace at that time, when they hear it, because it comes from God who made them, they are obliged to repent and believe, to worship Jesus Christ, though they won't do that apart from the enabling of the Spirit. We can still acknowledge that. There's still a duty, though. We've seen with good works, in chapter 17 on good works, it says the unregenerate cannot do good works that are acceptable to God. They're not good works. Why? They don't have faith. That which does not come from faith is sin. They don't do them rightly according to the word of God. And they don't do them from the, for, um, for the glory of God. And yet, to neglect good works is even more sinful for them. There's a duty to do those things. This is why I said as Baptists, we can teach our children to pray. You know Why? Not because they're covenant children who've been baptized. No, because they're creatures and they owe God worship. That's all you have to say. I used to hear that all the time in seminary. Well, if you're a Baptist, I don't know how you can teach, I don't know how you can teach your children to pray. It's like, well, um, look at your own Westminster Confession and it'll kind of give you the answer. Prayer is a duty required by God of all men. Okay, that's the answer to that. Um, okay, so that's just, I know that's kind of not so much prayer. I went kind of on a rabbit trail there. Um, but, but it does, who knew that there would be some utility in terms of um, speaking the gospel? I would also say this to you parents. Um, we teach our children the gospel. We, we present it to them. We pray for their souls. They also know that it's something that God does inside them, right? 
Um, there is a sense in which some of our children might come and think, I'm, I'm waiting for the Spirit to work. On the other hand, and you need to do this wisely, but it may be helpful to awaken your children um, with a gospel alarm to say, yes, you will not believe apart from the Spirit, but you nevertheless have a duty to believe. And every time you come to church and Pastor Ryan says, and you children here who maybe don't believe the gospel and you don't believe the gospel and you leave that day not believing the gospel, you've just rebelled against God one more time. You've actually just heaped more damnation upon yourself because it is a duty. God commands you to repent and believe. I think that's something good to remind our children. Um, we have to be careful there's, there's a sense in which we're very wise. We're waiting on the Lord to do something. Um, we can even, I've even spoken with unbelievers, and I'll say, you know, they'll say, I can't believe. And you say, well, read the word of God and keep praying because God gives faith through the word. There's a place for that. But also, we want to remember, that's not a place you want to stop and just say, let me wait. The gospel call is not wait until the spirit works in, in you to repent and believe. It's just repent and believe. Remind your children of that. Perhaps if some of them, now you have to be wise. If some of them already know their state, um, you know, you don't want to cause them to despair. But if they do despair and say, so you're telling me I can't believe unless the Spirit comes, but every Sunday I reject the gospel, I'm just heaping even more damnation upon myself. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Then you just say, Look to the merciful Savior. Cry out to him, especially with your inability. Take your inability to Jesus, just as you take your illnesses to the doctor. You take him, look at doc, this is what I have going on. These are all my problems. I need you to take that. Take all your inability and take it to Jesus Christ. Jesus, I'm such a sinner. I can't believe in you unless your spirit changes me. Have mercy. And Jesus will never reject someone who prays those things by faith. Remind your children of those things. Next, with the time we have left, let's continue on to paragraph three. It says, I'll start again from the beginning, prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship is by God required of all men, but that it may be accepted, right? It is to be made in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, by the help of the Spirit, according to His will. Again, only believers can do that. Nevertheless, there's still a duty. Um, all right. Let's go briefly over a few last things. Um, I'll still need to double back a little bit last week. I just realized this right now. But let's look at the last phrase of paragraph three. <clears throat> it says, with understanding reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when with others, in a known tongue. Now, we'll go back. Um, I realized after I wrote this, I want to go back more to what it means specifically to pray in the name of Jesus, the full significance of that. We'll, we'll look at that next week. Um, but let's just look at this first part. It's really now no longer polemical, uh, it's just kind of, this is what prayer is. The first thing it says is that fair uh, prayer is to be with understanding. The mind is to be engaged in prayer. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul really deals with this issue there. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 13 through 15. First Corinthians 14, 13 through 15. <clears throat> says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? 
I will pray with my spirit, but I will also, I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Now, when he says in verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, he means that in the speaking of tongues back then, uh, when it was genuine, right, it did not engage his mind, meaning he did not understand the language that he was speaking. In fact, it seems that this is why it was always necessary for there to be an interpreter, because the speaker of the tongue themselves did not know the meaning of it, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't need an interpreter. Or he says, you should pray that you yourself should interpret, is what he's getting at. So it was a genuine prayer. It was genuinely something from their soul, his spirit, but the mind was not engaged. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting, though, that he says there ought to be an interpreter. Um, even tongues, back in the early church, although the speaker themselves did not understand, it was never to be left in that state. And I would say you were not supposed to speak in tongues unless there was an interpreter. Why? Because otherwise it doesn't build up. There's no edification. It still is supposed to hit the minds. You know what I mean? The mind is not excluded. The idea um, that tons of people at the same time are all speaking in tongues, there's no interpretation. According to Paul, that has no place because there's no building up. You are still supposed to, through an interpreter, engage the mind and the heart and build up, right? Paul says in verse 16, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Applying this to prayer, it shows that with prayer, the mind, although it's not an exercise purely of the mind, right? We're not trying to say that. Nevertheless, the mind is always to be engaged. It is not to be mindless. On the one hand, we don't partly have this issue, first of all, because tongues have ceased, and also because we're cessationists, right? Um, um, Nevertheless, there are ways that you can pray mindlessly. There's ways that you can do all of worship mindlessly. What does Paul say is the sinful way to take the Lord's Supper without discerning an act of the mind, discerning by faith the body of Christ? That's sin. Why? Because you're doing it mindlessly. We can mindlessly read the Bible. How many of you have ever woken up and you're super tired and you haven't had coffee and you open the Bible and you read the same paragraph like 10 times? Yeah, some of you are smiling because you know what I mean. And then you're, then you're like, slap yourself and you're like, I am going to focus on what this means, right? You don't want to just do it mindlessly. We can pray the same way. We can pray things. I've even caught, have you ever caught yourself say something really dumb? And you're like, it's like, I don't know, things that you're just, your mind is talking. Um, God, I thank you for dinner. And it's like breakfast. And you're like, wait, what am I? I have to engage my mind, right? The mind is to be engaged when we do so. Uh, This was something also that was very, very important during the Reformation. Why? Because you have Rome... They have a twofold uh, ignorance and lack of understanding in prayer. First of all, there's the vain repetitions of our fathers and Hail Marys, right? That's mindless. You're just, you're just going on like heathens do. It's really funny. When Jesus criticizes that, the verb he uses is batalageo, and it's an onomatopoeia, which means the verb sounds like the other sound. That's what you hear. Um, I don't mean to insult any Spanish speakers, but my son Carlos, if you say, what does Spanish sound like? He goes, 
Because he doesn't understand it, right? So also, batalageo means to just, it's, there's mindless. It sounds like something, but there's no meaning, right? So much of uh, Roman prayers are just, they're meaningless. You're just trying to say it as many times to get your numbers done so to, you can finish your penance. Furthermore, especially during the time of the Reformation and before that, prayers were in Latin. So not only were you maybe mindlessly saying something, if you yourself even did it, but it was in a language that perhaps many people did not know. I remember a funny story my grandpa Carlos told me growing up in East L.A., um, his first language was Spanish, and he said he was in church one time, and he heard a prayer in Latin, but the way he interpreted it as a little boy, you know how in English, in excelsis Deo is eating Chelsea's Play-Doh? We say those things. He heard something in prayer, and he thought the end of the prayer was, y frijoles, amen. And he said, um, a nun said, Carlitos, what did you just say? And he said the whole thing, he said, y frijoles, amen. And she almost died. She was laughing so hard. But that's a, a double ignorance. That's especially how prayer is not to be, because you don't even know what you're saying to God, right? And so the reformers rightly, rightly rejected that. Now, just one last thing before we finish. There is a sense, though, in which we can acknowledge that in moments of great grief, in times of great pain, there is a kind of crying out to God I want to, maybe we could say that surpasses the mind or the grief is so great that you're really just groaning. And I have in mind in Romans chapter 8, 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That happens sometimes. And I think that's fine. There's times when grief is just so great you can't even form the words, and yet the Spirit intercedes. Notice, however, Paul says it is in our weakness. It's not a normal state. You don't normally want to be in this state where you're bypassing your mind. Normally, when your heart is not overflowing with grief, you also pray with your mind. As far as the application of that, I would encourage you, there's, the Puritans rejected set forms of prayers. Um, I often wonder, I'm not trying to criticize anyone who reads the Valley of Vision, but I do wonder what the Puritans would think of that because they rejected set forms. Um, um, nevertheless, there's a place for being much more thoughtful when we pray. Examine how you pray. As I said, I often start, dear Lord, we thank you for this day. I often don't even think about what I'm saying. It's just something I do. Am I truly thanking God for this day? We ought to do it with our mind. I would encourage you to examine um, how it is that you pray. But that's it. We'll continue to look at the rest of paragraph three.